growing up, right, if you're anything like me, we, we believed a lot of silly things that weren't true without ever asking for evidence. You know, I was a youth pastor, um, uh, I, I'm still a youth pastor, many years ago I was at a youth pastor meeting with a handful of other youth pastors from kind of the area, and uh, I'll never forget one of the uh, youth pastors got up and he said he was teaching this next week on childlike faith, and this is what he said, he said um, that we are to approach Christianity in the Bible like a child approaches Santa or the tooth fairy. And it took every ounce of my strength I had not to pull his tooth out and put it in my pillow, right? Because I could not disagree more with that statement. I mean, God has given you and God has given all of mankind right, a brain. And a brain that's capable of complex and cognitive thought and a brain that can rationally and logically investigate and understand the world around us and even the claims of Jesus and his resurrection, right? So why would God not want us to use our brain as we think about the grandest thought that the human mind can contain and that thought being God. So why else are we talking about evidence? Well, Christianity is unique in the fact that it doesn't hinge on a book. It doesn't hinge on a story. It doesn't hinge on like a, hey, like, because your pastor said so. It actually hinges on, a, on an event. One historic event that happened thousands and thousands of years ago that changed the course of human history forever and evermore. And not just that, it's also changed the lives of billions and billions of people. See, 20 centuries later, that one event is still radically changing people's lives all over the world. It's bringing healing to the broke, peace to the restless, and hope to the hopeless. And so today, I want to answer the big question. Can you, can I, really believe in the resurrection, and and why? Now, wherever you are in your kind of spiritual journey, I, I thought it would be important for us to kind of see some of the evidence. And, and, and I'm not going to, like, get the chance. I had originally 20 pages worth of notes. We're on page two right now, but I whittled it down to 10. You should thank me. Um... But there's literally so much, like there's certainly so much content out there. But again, like I said, I think it's important for you and I just to dive a little bit into the information tonight. Now, here's why we're doing this, because some of you doubt. Some of you are here and you're doubters. And I want to say, that's so awesome. Like, <laughs> I think that's awesome. Like, you probably didn't think you'd hear that in church, that doubting is, a, is an awesome thing. But I honestly think doubt could be possibly one of the greatest tools in your faith. Well, why? I say this all the time to my junior high and high school students. I say that um, if we believe that God is the author of truth, if we seek truth authentically and earnestly and genuinely, that we'll find its author, that person being God. So I think doubt is a great thing. I actually want you to, uh, I actually like, I meet with students all the time and I tell them not to believe like anything about Jesus that their parents have said. Because I want them to like wrestle with life's big questions. I want them to like look at Jesus and think like, is this real? Like, I don't want to just believe in this because, like, mom and dad dragged me by the ear when I was a kid and I had to put on shiny shoes and comb my hair. Like, I don't want that type of faith. I want a faith that's, like, tested. I, I, want, I want students to have a faith that they're, that they're challenging because, again, like I said, if God is the author of truth, as we seek truth, whether it be scientifically, philosophically, theologically, uh, historically, uh, looking at, you know, whatever it may be, if we seek truth, I think we'll find its author. The second is some of you are skeptical, and that, that's great, too. I mean, you need intellectual reasons to kind of, like, say, like, yeah, I'm going to follow this dude named Jesus, and I'm excited you're here because that's how I am. And you and I were just like this guy named Thomas. In John chapter 20, he was one of Jesus' followers. He says this, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. See, I think, I think um, being a skeptic isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, some of you are here and, and you're Christians, and you don't ever really talk about your faith because you're not really confident in what you believe. And you maybe don't even really understand what you believe, and so you don't talk about it because someone may ask you one simple question and you feel like all of your faith is, is collapsing in on itself, right? Well, uh, one, I know what that's like. But two, I, I want us to understand tonight that, that 
all of Christianity hinges on this one event. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this, right? But if you or I, we would become confident in our ability to explain the, the historical events surrounding the resurrection, our faith would have a huge confidence boost, and I think we'd be bolder in discussing our faith with people of other worldviews. Now, let me get us on the same page really quick. Not everyone knows what a worldview is, right? Because it's a, it's a word that not, isn't often used. And so a worldview is one, there's a few important things we need to understand. A worldview, one, everyone has a worldview. A worldview is just think of glasses, the lens in which you view the world around you. But in short, a worldview is how we answer life's big questions. And sometimes we answer those questions subconsciously, and sometimes we are um, conscious of our answers to these things. Let me give you a few um, examples. Um, All worldviews, consciously or subconsciously, answer four fundamental questions. And those questions deal with your um, origins. Where are we from? Are we big from Big Bang cosmology? What was before that, like the multi-universe? Or does uh, macro evolution really explain uh, the life, uh, the, the, yeah, does it explain the human um, life? Or um, the next one is a morality. Like, what is right, what is wrong? Is there's this thing called objective morality, which is true whether you believe to, it to be true or not, like the sun is hot? Or is morality subjective? Like, we can make morality really whatever we want it to be. Or the third is purpose. Like, why am I here? Why does my heart beat inside of my chest? And then the last one is destiny. So when my, when my heart stops beating, what happens? Where do I go when I die? All worldviews answer those four questions. Now, when evalu- evaluating a worldview, there are two questions things you and I need to ask. Here are the two questions. The first is, is it existentially satisfying? Here's what this means. Does it work for me? Right? Like, does it, does it make sense of my life experiences? Does my worldview begin to explain and answer some of those big questions? And then the second is, is it intellectually credible? Meaning, is there like proof? Like, why should I start putting some stock into this and some a mental or intellectual energy? Or, yeah, why should I put capital in this worldview, in this um, philosophical system or ideology or whatever it may be? Why should I believe it? Is there good reasons to believe that this thing, whatever it may be, is true? But here's the problem. I think today we've stopped asking the question, is it true? Right? In fact, many people don't even think there is a thing as truth. I remember sitting in a class in a um, philosophy class, and my teacher literally said that there's no such thing as objective truth. And I want to pull his tooth out, right? I mean, like, I, I was like, what? Like, that's, a, that's an absurd uh, statement. And so they only really asked the first question, which is, well, how does it make me feel? right? I mean, does this view of the world work for me? Does it bring me satisfaction? Not, regardless, they don't even care about truth anymore, and I think that's incredibly dangerous. Let me give you an example. Years ago, um, I was asked to speak at La Salle High School on the afterlife, and I was like, heck yeah. I was like, absolutely, right? So I walked into this class, and it's a class dealing with the afterlife. And so they asked, you know, what is the Christian uh, view of, of the afterlife, right? And how does one get there, and things along those lines. And I was like, allowed like 10 minutes to basically give, uh, uh, yeah, the Christian view on this. And then after, I was able to get like 10 or 15 minutes and ask students what they thought. And I'll never forget this one student like got up like, like super bold, like he was just waiting for this moment in his life, right? And he said that he gave this kind of elaborate explanation of heaven and, he said, he, and hell. And he said, well, you know, good people, they go to heaven. And bad people, they go to hell. And I said, well, where did, where did you get that? And he said, uh, I don't know, I made it up. I guess, I guess it just kind of like, it, it, just, it just feels good to me, right? Like, yeah. And I was like, in front of this class of like 30 kids, I was like, you're betting your entire eternity on, eh, like, yeah, that's, that feels good. And I'm like, dude, you have more faith than I do. Or uh, a while back, a lady I know very well um, asked me about, you know, what I thought about heaven or hell. And then, at the, then I finally, you know, I said, well, what do you believe? And she said that when she dies, she'll become a beautiful fruit tree. And I said, okay, where did you come up with that? And 
she said that she liked the thought of it, so that must be what happens when she dies. So I said, okay, um, in the kindest way, like theoretically speaking, could that tree be cut down by like a dude, like a sweaty dude with an axe? And then could that tree be printed into paper? And on that paper, the Bible that says reincarnation isn't true. And she went, huh, I guess I've never thought that deeply about it or maybe never thought about it in that way. And then she said, yeah, I guess that doesn't really make sense, does it? And then she went, oh, well. And I went, oh, well. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> You're not going to go to heaven and be like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, oh, well. Like, that's not, that's not you know, like, like what? Like, like, and so, <laughs> so it opened an awesome segue, right, for me to talk with, with both these kids, with the kid and the adult, um, about, about Jesus and about heaven and hell and the afterlife and, and why I believe so much that Jesus, one, is who we claim to be, but two, is the only way to, actually, to get to heaven and be in relationship with God. And, and so here's what's unique about Christianity that I want us to understand tonight is that, well, one, we believe it not only feels right and works, but we also believe that it's investigated historically and philosophically, that it can be tested and found to be true. See, what separates kind of Christianity from other world religions is other religions either say, like they say something like a, a prophet says, hey, take my word for it. God told me to tell you fill in the blank or whatever it may be. But see, Christianity is different because it all rises and falls on the resurrection. No pun intended, that works. All right. Um, but see, the, the other thing that I was thinking through this last week, that if the resurrection isn't true, like we are silly for sitting in this building right now. Like you are wasting your time. And if you've grown up in church, your parents have wasted their time and, and your time all growing up, because if it isn't true, Jesus is just some crazy, like, religious crazy man, right? But if it is true, that changes everything, and it means that we should tune our lives to what this guy that lived thousands of years ago named Jesus says about our life, because it means that he has an authority over my life and your life that no other society, institution, or, other, or person can have or should have. And it also means, think of a slide for this, that if this is true, then the resurrection— is God's public where am I? vindication of Jesus' radical personal claims to be God and reconcile us back to God the Father by wiping out our debt of sin. And so today, here's what I want to do. And, and like I said, I had 20 pages that whittled them down to 10. Because um, I was going to give you, I was just going to just throw up information your way, and I was like, that's going to make every, all of you fall asleep. So I want to give you four historical facts about the resurrection um, that a majority of mainstream New Testament scholars believe in. And these New Testament scholars aren't even like Christians. These are atheists, agnostics, people of other, other like, uh, religious systems or whatever it, it is. They're, they have no skin in the game, right? But all of these, um, these facts, a majority of New Testament scholars agree on. And I just want to be upfront with you. Today is a lot of data. So you're welcome to take your phones out or some notes or, or whatever it is. Take some pictures of some of the slides um, that I'm going to... Uh, throw up today. It's not like a really good, like, feel-good message. That's like next week, like, what are the implications of all this data in this world and in our lives? But I want you to track with me, and I'm not going to go super deep into all of this stuff today, but if you do have questions, um, come talk to me after. I have so much resources that I'd love to give to you. So fact number one, follow with me. It says this. After his crucifixion, so by the way, um, Jesus' death by crucifixion in the first century by, um, by the Roman government is a historical fact. There is no scholar, atheist, or, or Christian, or whatever it may be, that would discredit the fact that a dude named Jesus Christ um, in about 30 to 33 AD, they're not exactly sure on the time, um, died by crucifixion. It's like a historical fact. 
So after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by a member of the Sanhedrin, that's the religious class, the, 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 like the upper echelon of the religious Jewish uh, system, um, named Joseph of Arimathea. So this is all found um, in, in the book of John. Now, I've met with a lot of people and they've said, um, well, yeah, actually, uh, that's cool you brought the Bible up, but like, I actually don't believe anything that's in the Bible. I don't believe it's evidence. Now, that baffles me because I don't understand what they're saying. Like, you don't believe in like, poetry? Like, what, 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 like, you don't believe in the historical narrative of Moses freeing um, the, the Israelites out of slavery and captivity in Egypt? Like, like what, don't, what don't you believe in? Now, you may not believe in the theological presuppositions that are in Scripture, but the historical narrative or poetry or, or the other different types of genre that are in the Bible, it's silly to say you don't believe in the Bible as evidence. In fact, uh, there's no historian, secular or um, a believer, who thinks that. That's, an, uh, that's kind of an objection made on a popular level, but never at a scholarly level. So anyways, it says this in the book of John, chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Nicodemus um, was also another religious leader. Fun fact, his name means the conqueror, and it's where we get Nike. There you go. Um, The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body, and the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jew- Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. This part's important. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this verse is important for really two reasons. One, that the character in this verse, Joseph of Arimathea, and the truth that he actually was buried in a pretty popular place, right? I mean, there's three thoughts that I want to give to you. The first is that the Christians would have not ever included this kind of strange detail of Joseph doing all this because he was actually part of the group of people that killed Jesus. The Sanhedrin were the people that actually crucified Jesus. Number two, that there is no other kind of competing burial story. I mean, there's no other like, like stories from the ancient world um, that say Jesus was buried in a different tomb. So everyone knew that Jesus was buried in this specific tomb, and because everyone knew where this tomb was, because it was a, it was a, a, a high official a member of the Sanhedrin's tomb. Everyone would have known where this location was. Fact number two is this. Um, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was found. Now that everyone knew where the specific tomb was going to be, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was found empty by a group of women, and, Jewish, and the Jews admit to it being empty. Now this is also important for two really quick reasons. The fact, one that's recorded, that women were the first people that, fa- that found it, and then the second is that Jews admitted to this tomb that everyone knew where it would be was found empty. Now, the first part's interesting for you and I to understand because the, in first century Palestine, um, women were, were not really found to be credible. I mean, it actually would have been an incredibly embarrassing detail to say that the very first people that found Jesus' tomb empty are people that would not allowed to say anything in court. Right? But women weren't seen as trustworthy and not allowed to be legal witnesses during this time. So you would, if you were making this story up, you would have not included this detail. And the second part is that the Jews admit it was empty. Right? So there's actually early accusations by the Jews that the disciples stole the body. And uh, obviously this isn't uh, them seeing that the tomb was completely empty. Now you kind of compound that with the fact that everyone knows you know, where this tomb would have been. So if people were claiming that this tomb was empty and that this huge two-ton stone was rolled away, they would have been like, well, let's go, let's go walk down. It's like half a mile. Let's go see if it's empty, right? So if it was not empty, 
hundreds and thousands of people would be rotting saying, it wasn't empty. Like, yo, your boy's still in there, right? Like, it's not empty. Fact number three is this. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. So this sounds actually kind of crazy, but uh, this is universally acknowledged today among scholars. I mean, there were large numbers of people who believed that they actually saw the risen Jesus after he was crucified. People like, you know, Peter, the 12 disciples, over 500 other people, and even James, Jesus' brother. Now, all of this is recorded in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four of the New Testament, but it's also recorded outside of the Bible. These are called extra-biblical sources, right? So there's tons of sources, like um, a guy named Tactus. He was a Roman senator and and a a historian. Or uh, Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, so he would not um, write in Jesus' favor. And then a guy named Suetonus, which is a, a famous um, Roman historian. These are all outside of the Bible saying like, yo, these people are saying that they actually saw him. And then another crazy thing is that Jesus' brother James was not a believer during Jesus' life. But after he died, James, after he saw, uh, James saw that he saw his brother resurrected, he actually became a leader of the Jerusalem church and eventually was murdered for this belief in 60 A.D., now, we always joke, right? Like, what would, it, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling was, like, the Messiah and then actually die for that belief? Like, I'm telling you, like, my sister would have to die, come back with, like, two heads, you know? And then even then, I would probably think, like, those weren't normal mushrooms on my pizza, right? I'd be, like, tripping, right? So, like, James literally goes, like, does a 180, right? He's like, all right, you're not, the, you're not who you say you are. Sees him resurrect and goes, like, yo, I'm willing to, like, die for you because of what I've seen, right? And then fact number four is, uh, well, actually, before we get to that, let me say this. This is such a historical certainty that atheist scholars who reject that the people actually saw the physical Jesus um, literally say that they were high and hallucinating, and then that's that, that they thought they saw him. But there are so many holes in that logic. It's a pretty crappy argument because to say that like a thousand people all hallucinated the same thing at different times in different places and all tell a very similar story, there's 27,000 different manuscripts in the New Testament, and a lot of those manuscripts contain these stories. It's silly. It's silly to say that like all of these people had the same hallucination. That's not how it works. That's not how like tripping out works, right? Like you and your friend like take a drug and you guys all have the same. That's not how it works, right? So it's silly. But another interesting fact is that, um, well, fact four, the original disciples believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every reason not to, and it changed their lives for the worse. Now, let me explain this. To kind of explain this, I think you and I really need to understand kind of the world and their situation and what they're kind of going through at the time, right? Their leader, who they've followed for three years, has just up and died, right? They saw him get murdered and flogged and, and yeah, murdered in front of their eyes, right? Now, they were, weren't stupid people. They were, they were as likely to believe in someone coming back from the dead as you and I are, right? Like, everyone knows that dead men stay dead, right? And they were just as intelligent as you and I would be in that. Now, compound the fact that the Jews had a conception of their coming Messiah, right? And these Jews believed that Jesus was their Messiah. And they had this kind of interesting view of what their Messiah was going to look like because of Old Testament prophecies of what their Messiah was going to look like, that he was going to kind of triumph over their enemies of, um, of Israel and not be executed by their enemies, right? So they had in their minds um, an interesting view of the Messiah because Israel um, was kind of in a tough situation for like 
900 years, right? So currently they're under the Roman um, Empire. Before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was the Assyrians. And before that, it was the Babylonians. And before that, it was like everyone and their mothers, right? I mean, like they were just being conquered and oppressed and, 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 and stripped of their identity for like hundreds and hundreds of years. So of course, if you, were a Jew, if you were a Jew during this time, right, you would have this idea that like your Messiah was going to look like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out of the clouds on a unicorn, right? Like with a machine gun, right? Like that's like what they thought their Messiah was going to look like. Not a dude that was going to be murdered and embarrassed on a cross. In fact, that detail alone that their Messiah would have been executed on a cross would be an incredibly embarrassing one because it showed that um, this man Jesus was seen as a heretic, not sent by God. Now, despite having all of these different crazy beliefs in opposition to the resurrection of Jesus, they, they believed so much that they were willing to go to their grave and saw this. In fact, before and during his crucifixion, what I actually find really interesting um, they acted like, you know, scared junior high girls who've just watched, like, paranormal activity. I mean, they're, like, they're terrified. They're, like, hiding in an upper room. Like, they're not willing to, like, go out and tell anyone about Jesus or anything along those lines. But right after, when they see Jesus resurrect, they become so emboldened. That these, like, they become, like, these, these emboldened warriors who are willing to be, like, brutally murdered for their faith. In fact, I, I have a slide that will show you basically how these guys all got murdered. All right, this guy's named G, uh, James the Greater. Awesome name. Um, I can't see it. What does it say? I'll put it up on my computer. Oh, cool. He was stabbed with a sword, right? So that's a cool death. Um, James the Lesser, not a cool name. Uh, he was stoned to death. Um, Thaddeus uh, was filled with arrows. Philip, crucified by soldiers. Thomas, thrusted with the spear. Paul, beheaded in Rome. Peter, crucified. Oh, this is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times, by the way. And then right after all of this, sees Jesus resurrect year late, years later, says, I'm not even worthy to die the same death that Jesus died. Crucify me upside down. Um, John uh, died a natural death. He, he, he stayed alive, went to this uh, Greek island called Patmos, wrote the book, the last book of the Bible. Um, Matthew stabbed with a sword. Judas, um, the traitor, uh, committed suicide after betraying Jesus. All God's people said amen. Uh, Simon, crucified. Bartholomew, flayed. They literally... So, <laughs> They took his skin off, and then after he died, they beheaded him, right? Dude, like, what? First off, just, let's continue. All right, so um, Andrew, uh, crucified on an X-shaped cross, just because we're fancy. Um, Matthias, crucified in Judea. What on earth could get these people who were so timid to, like, be so willing to be, like, horrifically murdered for their faith? In fact, I actually think that this change of heart is one of the most compelling arguments because the only explanation is that they saw some type of powerful experience that changed their life, and they were willing to be killed. Now, another interesting thing is none of those disciples gained uh, anything. Most people will lie for, like, to gain power or to gain possessions or to gain some, like, some type of social prestige or status or something along those lines. The, these, these men gained nothing. They lost everything. In fact, Paul... Um, he came from something. Most scholars believe he was the most educated person in the world. He was wealthy. He had everything going from him. He was, a, one of, he was one of the Pharisees, one of the members of the religious ruling class. He had everything going for him. He stepped from all of those things to nothing and then eventually be murdered for his faith because he believed that Jesus was who he claimed he was. Now, some of you here are going, all right, well, martyrdom, that's being killed for your faith, that's not like unique to the Christian faith. I mean, just think about like, you know, what happened on September 11th. Right? And I'll be honest with you, you're right. People are willing to die in the name of their God because they believe what's recorded in their holy book is true. 
It is how, you know, radicals are willing to strap bombs to their chest or fly, you know, planes into, uh, into buildings. But it is important for you and I to note that the people who committed 9-11 um, flew those two planes into that building because, are, more importantly, that they were not eyewitnesses to Muhammad's life. In other words, they never knew what Muhammad was like. They never knew him at all. So they're just basically taking what he wrote, what Muhammad wrote. Muhammad wrote the entire Quran, by the way. The Bible's written by like 40 different authors, like 1,500 different years, and it all tells a corresponding story. But so Muhammad wrote the entire Quran by himself. And so these, these, these terrorists are, are, are basing their actions on his words, not what they actually saw with their own two eyes. Now, what's different with the disciples, if they would have known if they were lying, right? And who dies willingly for a lie? You'd just be like, yo, I, I was making it up especially if you're the only person or you're a group of people that understand that this is a lie, like you didn't actually see him resurrect, right? Rather, in the stories and the lives of the disciples, all of them were willing to lay down their life for what they said they saw. Now, yes, sure, it's possible that these disciples lied, but I don't think it's probable that they, that they lied. And so that's a bunch of historical stuff, right? And, 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 and if you want more information, like, come talk to me after. I didn't want to like, bore you with so many details. But I want to give you next kind of a, personal, a personally compelling argument, and that is the teachings of Jesus himself. Jesus' teachings are, are arguably the most powerful teachings in the world. He had insight into human nature that no other teacher ever had. He, he, he brought a new standard of morality that changed the entire world, and he had a sense of wisdom that no one's had since. Now, while I was in India um, I, uh, with a bunch of young adults like a handful of years ago, um, I got to having this like, great conversation with the driver um, of one of the vans that we had. And um, I was telling him about the teachings of Jesus because he was telling me about the, the teachings of Buddha because he was a strict follower and adherent to um, what Buddha's teachings say. And so I started talking to him about like, you know, what he believes and things like that. And, and then um, he's like, well, tell me about Jesus, right? Because they have like millions of gods. So just adding, adding a few more is like whatever, right? And so, um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, so Jesus is this, Jesus is that. I'm telling him all about this stuff, right? And he said that Jesus' teachings didn't prove anything, right? He said this. He said that um, Jesus was just a smart guy, good teacher, and thoughtful. Well, I, I said, oh, hold that thought for a second, and, and I want you to understand that there is a fundamental difference between, you know, all influential religious teachers, Buddha included, and Jesus. And the main difference is that Jesus accepted worship as God, for example, Buddha said, like, don't worship me. Right? Like, I, I am not God. Don't look to me, but look at my doctrines and look at my teaching. Jesus said the exact opposite. He said, worship me. I am God. Don't worship my teachings or doctrines, but me as I've made myself known and revealed myself through those things. And then he said, well, maybe he's just a good teacher. And I said, okay, Jesus can't be a good guy if everything he's saying is not true. No good guy says, believe in me or burn forever and ever. Or on the day of judgment, every knee will bow in front of me in terror and torment, and the believers will bow in love and respect. You don't, you don't hear that and go, oh, that little Jesus, what a sweetheart. Like, that's not, he, can't, he can't be a good teacher if the stuff he's saying is not true. But I like the way that a guy named C.S. Lewis said it. He says, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Now, for sake of time, let me lump in uh, liar and lunatic, because they're kind of the same thing, right? Either Jesus uh, was a really bad person, or he was a crazy person, right? But the problem with this is if you look at Jesus' teaching, and the way that he cared for the poor, and, he, and the way that he gave insights into our deepest human needs, and he preached love, and he preached devotion, and, and commitment, this isn't the teachings of a crazy person. 
In fact, it's, un- it's unbelievably profound, the teachings of Jesus. In fact, even atheist scholars will say the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 is the most profound teaching on human nature this world has ever seen. I love the way that a guy named John Watson, I think I have the quote, um, says this. He's a, a world-renowned um, American psychologist. He says this, No one has yet to discover the words Jesus ought not to have said. None suggested the better word he might have said. No action of his has shocked our moral sense. None has fallen short of the ideal. He is full of surprises, but they are all the surprises of perfection. You are never amazed one day by his great you are never amazed one day by his greatness, the next by his littleness. You are you are ever amazed that he is incomparably better than you could ever experience. He is tender without being weak, strong without being coarse, lowly without being servile. He has conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without uh, being crazy, being, you know, yeah, being crazy. Holiness without being pharisaicalism is like this, like legalism, um, like holier than thou. Um, Passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step, never struck a jarring note. His life alone moved on those high levels where local limitations are transcended and the absolute law of moral beauty prevails. It was life at its highest. So this is not you know, the, the, the life of a liar or a lunatic, right? He, he never, what this guy is saying is that Jesus never falls short. He's always surpassing expectation and he's always doing something that no one else could ever do. And so the last one is, yeah, he, I guess he could be a liar. Like Jesus potentially could be a liar, but I love the way that this guy named Thomas Aquinas answers this. He says this, by the way, I just put smart dude. He's like super smart. He's like a doctor. He's a theologian. He was like a philosopher. He was smart. That's all you need to know. Um, if Jesus Christ did not happen, an even more unbelievable miracle happened. Uh, the conversion of one half of the Roman Empire, Empire world and their moral transformation into unselfishness and holiness, all by the biggest lie in history. So in short, either, either you can follow the evidence where it leads, and that evidence leads towards the resurrection, that it actually happened, or you can believe something far more improbable happened. And I come from a family of atheists, and so I understand that a lot of people are willing to believe the improbable, and that's amazing to me. I mean, let me tell you why I think most people are willing to believe in, this, in, in the improbable idea that he didn't actually resurrect. And I think I have a slide for this. Because if the resurrection really happened, it means that your life is not yours to do with as you please. In other words, you are accountable for what you do and what you don't do. And one thing for certain is people are willing to do some of the craziest things and are willing to believe some of the craziest things to, to can remain being the Lord over their life, to remain at the seat of power, right? To, not, to live autonomously or self-governing, right? To not lay down or submit their life to another authority. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine there's a judge who, who is asked to judge a case for a company that he or she is a shareholder in. Now this judge, let's say, um, if... if the corporation or whatever, if they lose, this judge is going to lose a billion dollars. If found innocent, um, they, she will gain, or this person will gain a billion dollars. If you would be intellectually honest, you would probably say that this judge is not going to be able to look at this case without bias or in a way that's neutral, without bringing some presupposition already into um, the courtroom and into, into the case. But the same is true with you and with me. See, when you and I read the Bible, you have more of a conflict than the judge does. Because you lose control over your life if it's true. You are not the supreme authority over your life. And so if you are doubting the resurrection, I just want us to be aware that there could be some biases that that we have that are maybe even unconscious, that are pushing us away from actually believing that this guy Jesus is, is who he claims that he is. But one thing for certain is that you cannot be indifferent about Jesus. That you either fear him and run, hate him and attack, or love him and surrender. 
as we begin to wrap up today, the thought I guess I want to leave you on is if you, will, if you and I love him and surrender our lives to him because he is really who he claimed to be, the good news is that the resurrection is just confirmation. It's confirmation that his claims to be all that he was is true. And in turn, that gives you and I a living hope. And if, it gives you the hope that the fact that you don't got to do this life alone, that there is a creator who deeply loves you and cares for you and has a plan for your life and that he has an amazing plan for your life after this life ends. And so as we wrap up today, I just want to end talking with three types of people. The first is the skeptic. I'm so excited you're here. And I encourage you tonight to just do, a, this is just a little intro to, to the, the ocean of information that's out there. And, and if you are the skeptic and you're here tonight and you're like, I got dragged here because like my girlfriend wanted me to like hear about Jesus, I'm excited you're here, right? And I'd love to talk with you after this. But you owe it to yourself to be 110% sure about this whole Jesus thing. For the doubter, your doubt doesn't bother Jesus. Doubt didn't make Jesus run away from Thomas, and it's not going to make him run away from you. In fact, Jesus took the challenge, and he said, here's the evidence. Investigate. See that I am who I say I am. And then lastly, for the Christian, for the person that's like already given their life over to Jesus, and you're sitting here, and you're going, great. The stuff that that dude's saying up there just like affirms all of the stuff that I already believe. Well, my challenge for you is that you need to learn this stuff, because your job is to be a light in a dark world. And as culture gets more and more away from God, we didn't have answers for why we need to turn back. Let me pray for us. God, I just uh, want to thank you for music. Uh, God, I want to thank you that you have given us a brain that can look into this world and ask tough questions. And God, I believe so much with all of my heart, Father, that you are the author of truth. And if we, if we seek truth, whether that be um, through history, um, theology, philosophy, whatever it may be, God, that we'll find you its author. And so, God, I, I ask that you continue to challenge us, um, God, to be Christians uh, that seek you, but also Christians who um, investigate the claims that you made thousands of years ago so that we can have more confidence in our faith. And God, for the people here that are doubters or skeptics, I am so excited they're here. I ask that you continue to, um, God, show yourself to them through, uh, through history or whatever it may be that will show them you are who you claim to be. So, Father, we thank you for the resurrection. I'm so excited for next week because we get to talk about all what that means for our lives here and today. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.